Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. Jason Roundsville here, joined as always by my co-host Dylan Ray, and we have with us from the NRA, the National Rifle Association, we have Peter Churchborn, who is the director of the Hunters Leadership Forum. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see so, you. Yes, it's nice to see you. I think we we're just talking off camera, and I think we go back, what, 21, maybe a little bit more, 21, 22 years? Long time. We've not so, only known each other a long time, we've had some incredible adventures together. We have, and it's it's amazing how sometimes you you have so many adventures and so many neat experiences and some of like you just have to connect reconnect with people to remember them yeah and i mean uh we just talked about the one i think you came i was in california you were in washington state yeah I had a, an event, actually a sponsor event for DU that I was hosting the night before. I got done with that at like 10 and drove all night up to the Oregon coast. And then you came from Washington and you had to stop yep. to actually pick up a boat yep. from my parents' house. Yeah. Yeah. We literally met at the boat launch. Got there at, you know, three in the morning or whatever it was, launched Augie the boat. As couldn't see the front of the boat. Yeah. Yeah. We still went down, shot 21 ducks. Yep. And then after that, zoomed down even farther into the bay and got three limits. So 36 Dungeness crab. Yep. 
And it was just one of those days that was just super cool. Never, and, uh, never set foot on ground. And, no. and um, I, I, I remember that because you were used to setting those crab traps and we set them right in the breakers. We went out and then came back into the beach and I remember, because I wasn't used to that West Coast living, I was like, wait a minute, this boat is going to end up on that beach at any second. And you held it right there, and we dumped the crab pots out. And, yep. <laughs> yeah, I do remember all of us getting a pretty good nap in between pulling pot. We'd put the pots out, yeah. grab a 20-minute nap, pull the pots, yeah. put them back out, 20-minute nap. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was one of those crazy cool days. How did we not get a picture of that huge pile of crabs? And I don't ducks? know. We do have. I found a picture of us with the widgeon limit, and that yes. was just hours before or after. But I don't know how we didn't get all those Dungeness crab. We ate crab that, for weeks. Oh man, yeah. And there's nothing like fresh Dungeness <laughs> crab right out of the cooker. Oh, it was good. Yeah. So we, yeah, we had some pretty good adventures. Um, did that was fun. And, you know, back in the day when we were maybe a little bit younger and gas wasn't $6 a gallon, it was a little bit easier to drive seven or eight or 13 hours. 13 to, hours, right. Exactly. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. Boat. <laughs> yeah. How, how far, how far was it from you to Humboldt? That um, well, we, I, I had my buddy with me from the East coast, my buddy's son, who had actually never even flown before. I flew him out and we did a tour <laughs> of the, Mount, you know, Hood, right. Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, the whole thing. And then I had to have been, it was 888 miles to Rancho Cordova from my house because I used to have to go down to that office. Right. Time. So Humboldt, you had to go cut down at Ashland, cross the border. It had to have been a 10-hour drive at least. Oh, I'd, I'll yeah. bet it was maybe even more because it's a you lot. Had to, that you had to go over the uh, the the coastal Yeah, and then... And then that 101 is a long road. It I mean, is. it's it's a long. It takes 90, a long time. Twenty five miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. It was so, a long yeah. way. It was worth it though. <laughs> oh, that was that was one of those epic days that you just hope for. And it was, I remember because I, I had mentioned to you, I was working for you at the time for for DU, right? And I said, hey, I'm I'm thinking about taking tomorrow and and maybe trying to go over and catch a salmon on the coast. And you're like. Really? Because I, I don't think I, I mean, know anybody <laughs> who loves to eat fish more than you. I mean, it's like, how many coolers should I bring? And, and man, we bombed over there and, and I had talked to the people and and somebody said, oh, man, you run the 265 feet. You put your stuff in and, and just and you'll you'll find the fish. And I'm like, OK. And I remember we put the boat in and in town. It was sunny. Mm -hmm. And then as we got out to the end of the jaws, end of the jetties, I punched the gps in because it started getting foggy yeah and we went out and i was running 45 miles an hour the ocean was smooth hammered down and you're like how deep are we and i'm like 85 and we're just hammering down. how deep are we 92 and it just wasn't getting like we ran i think when we stopped we were 16 and a half miles from the end of the jetty yep and and not in a 40 foot ocean boat this is a 20 no. foot sled yeah and, uh, man, it was, I was never more relieved on a fishing trip for us to get that first strike Yeah, because we were running three rods, two on the down rear, one out the back. And I remember that first rod went down and you, you brought it in and it was a silver, which you can't keep in California. And I'm like, man, all pressure's off. I got it. We caught a fish in the boat. Yeah. And, and I, I'll never forget the look on your face. You're like, we have to throw that back. Why do we have to throw that back? Because you can't keep them here. But it's tasty. 
<laughs> doesn't matter. And I think we we kept the first five Chinook we caught, which were all like six to eight pounds, just not yeah. big, yeah. nice fish. But you, you're in the middle. You don't know what you're doing. You know or, what, right. We were yeah. brand new to all that, figuring out what kind of rig to use and a boat that we probably shouldn't have been in. So yeah. we were happy to catch anything. We're happy to catch anything. And as we're trolling along, we had, I think the downriggers were like 240 feet down. And all of a sudden, all three rods go off at the same time. And we, we had to run. Yeah. We I had to pull hooks. I put it in the wrong hole, not in the rod holder. I yeah. Like in a cup holder trying to deal with that. That one goes pop. <laughs> yeah. I remember the last thing of the day was having to pull hooks out of two 25 pound Chinook when we had a whole bunch of little ones in the box and we're yeah. just like, yeah, that's how it goes. But that's how it goes. Yeah. I think we, we buttoned her up and had to run 22 miles back in. So yep. that was that, fun, that epic day. That was, but Wait, anyway, but we, but we accomplished what's the Jason. I learned what's the first rule of the boat. Stay in the boat. And what's the second rule of the boat. Do whatever stay. the captain tells you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we did it. We stayed in yes. the boat. We stayed all in the, the times that we hunted. We used to take that sled out on a on a run across a, a lake uh, down here in southern Oregon, Klamath, Klamath Lake, yeah. with the layout boats across the lake. We'd go up over the levee, and it was yeah. over. First rule of the boat: everyone stays in it. Stay in it. Yeah. <laughs> I still yeah, we love today. Yeah, we we had man, we had some good times, but uh, I, I think we could fill an hour just with some oh, of our adventures. Because I, hours. you know what, I hadn't even thought about that Klamath hunt. But I have a picture of you, me, Mike Shannon, and one other guy with our 28. I think we had 28 docks and a few geese yep. on, on those layout boats yep. from one of those Klamath hunts. Yeah. Uh, I think I I've got one telling, of those in my gun. I was just telling you, are right. We could sit here all day long. And yeah. Talk I was just telling the story the other day of when we were building those boats in your garage uh, and that turkey was story. gobbling. Oh yeah. And I was like, Hey, hold, hold on. Shut that saw. I'm going to go kill this turkey. And, and you did. Down, I did. You literally <laughs> jumped off. Twice, pop, pop, and he comes on a string. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then one of my neighbors comes over and he says, did you hear that shot? We're like, no. And you look down and there's turkey feathers rolling across the driveway. <laughs> It was, was all, it was, it was all legal. Season. It was, all it was in the, yeah, it was all the seasons tags in uh, out in the County, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was just, fun. man, gosh, good stuff. But I mean, of all the cool stories that we had over years, or, I mean, over a decade of working together, um, a lot of neat adventures, but why we connected this time is I wanted to talk about some of the work that the NRA is doing uh, for hunters, just specifically for hunters. I mean, NRA is absolutely, if you look at the, the organization, organization protecting our gun rights, I mean, it's the NRA. There's some other local ones. I know we have one here in Oregon, but NRA is, is it, but I think a lot of people don't realize, especially if you see any part of any of the media yeah. that the NRA does so, so much more than that. Yeah. That and we, we, we do. And, and I want to talk about the, the research that you guys have done um, into attitudes pertaining to hunting from the non-hunting public and how that has formed not only what you guys do and the communication strategy that you have, 
But I mean, you guys have now put out a book, you've done articles, you've done talks. Um, I'd love to talk about that because it directly affects every one of our Pope and Young members. Whether you have a gun or not, this is information you need to know because this needs to be front and center when you're communicating, when you're on an airplane next to that person who doesn't hunt, here's the messaging that you need to have in your little toolbox. Yeah, yeah so, exactly right. You know, give us give us a background on, I mean, when you when we talked, I think you called, you had seen a press release that we had done regarding, you know, our position statement on ballot box initiatives for wildlife management. And, right. you know, we're against wildlife management. We think the professional managers should manage the wildlife. Just like, I don't want somebody in town voting for who manages my 401k. Sure. I don't want somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about with deer or bears, right. Ballot boxing, you know, management of, of wildlife. So, right. Um, and you're like, where did this come from? Cause this fits right in line with, yeah. with what we're seeing. Yeah. 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 So, so, so a little background on it. Um, the, the, the little portion of the NRA that I helped manage called the Hunters Leadership Forum was started back in 2015 as a, as a fundraising initiative to raise some money to do some hunting specific work. Um, and one of the things that came out of that uh, before I was involved with it, with HLF is that they uh, commissioned a bunch of research. They utilized the responsive management um, who does, does a lot of the research for the outdoor industry. Mm -hmm. And they did a research project on American attitudes towards hunting and the animal rights movement. There had been other studies done before, and this was kind of an update on the previous studies, but also went way more in depth with focus groups um, and uh, more in-depth questions on the American attitudes on those things. So when we got all the data, uh, thousands of pages of research, you know, any new research project is going to spawn questions. Well, we're gonna have to go do some more research. So actually the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation got a multi-state grant to expand on our research. And on that research, we wanted to do another little project that said, that questioned some of that research. So finally, um, we had all this data and we wanted to get it out. And, there were, and I'm a big proponent of enough research, let's move into the action phase. Yeah. So during COVID, um, we went, we had time on our hands and we went what I internally called from research to action. So Mark Duda and I, he's the one that runs responsive management, got together and we said, we need to put out this research findings to the industry because there's no reason for us keeping all this great data. We need to share it with everybody. They can benefit from it. So we had planned to do a pamphlet. We said, we're going to put all this information into a pamphlet and then give it away for free. Just let people see it. Well, that pamphlet turned into a 200-page book um, called How to Talk About Hunting. And Mark and his crew did the majority of the writing in this, and then I overshadowed to make sure that the research was hitting the points that, that made it uh, relevant to the hunting industry. There was a lot more stuff in there that we learned that really wasn't relevant to what we do every day, but we made sure that what we put in this book would help people define 
or or redefine or create in some cases their communication strategies on how to talk about hunting based on research not my opinion not the nra's opinion not right. mark's opinion based on what we found on truth factual in-person research from non-hunters and i mean you guys how many you were telling me the numbers and it was i mean hundreds and hundreds of of interviews and Oh, you bet. I mean, yep, yep, yep. In-person um, uh, meetings where you have people behind the glass uh, door, you, uh, the window, you're looking at them, um, asking them questions, in-person focus groups. And then wow. one of the surveys we did online was like 22,000 people um, that answered a series of questions. You know, this resonates with me. This doesn't resonate with me. So yes, thousands of people from all different walks of life uh, socioeconomic groups in all different parts of the United States. So we had to make sure that we had the right people from the Northeast, the Southeast, the Southwest, so we could get the true opinion of American attitudes. Gotcha. And so when you put out the book and when you put this information out, wh what, I guess, was there anything that just totally shocked you about what you learned on this? Yeah. You know, a, a lot of the stuff in here, you know, we, we, we do this all the time in our in our industry. And I, I sit on a couple different boards and a multi-state grant, uh, a grading crew. And we all say, okay, this and that happens in our industry. We think that, and sometimes we're pretty right, but we have no proof of it. So until you have research proof, it's very difficult to start moving off in a direction, whether it's a communication strategy or an, or an in-person program until you know it's going to work. So having the data, Having knowing that it's the real deal, factual stuff helps you make wiser decisions. Um, so we wanted to get this information out. So we, for first run, I think we printed five thousand books, and then I did we did six series of articles in the American Hunter that basically took the research down to the best that we possibly could for six articles, because this is 200 pages and it's research. Now, what we did do in the book is at the end of every chapter, we put the cliff notes because that's who, how I got through college. So I'm, I'm very, very uh, uh, knowledgeable. <laughs> cliff notes. So at the end of every No chapter, comment. Yeah, no comment from me on that. It's absolutely true. Um, at the end of every chapter is the cliff notes. So if you just have time, you can read those. It gives you the essence of the chapter. Um, and then, but the articles we put in American Hunter were even more knocked down so that the, the everyday hunter who doesn't have an opportunity to get one of these books because we just don't have enough to send to every hunter, um, they could read the, those information. And I share those articles and hope people repost them wherever they want. But that got the essence of the communication message of what hunters can share with other people and what they can do to improve um, or build upon the uh, uh, attitudes of non-hunters towards hunters. Yeah, because I think as hunters, you get into a... Oh, if it's a mindset where, where you're just like, Hey, this is how it is. And this is how it is. Oh, and absolutely. you don't care about their viewpoint, but oh, as oh. more and more gets, I mean, yep. they're as voters decide on more and more of our life as yep. hunters, it's got to matter to us how we talk to them. Well, it's also, it's also interesting too, when I talk to hunters and, and we're, Sorry, my dog is trying to get in my lab right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, it is, it is um, 
when I talk to hunters and I say, okay, hunter, how many hunters do you think there are in the United States? How many, how, how much, what part of the percentage population percentage do you think you represent? And hunters will go, oh, I you know, 50% of people in the United States hunt. And when I tell them that 11.5 million people purchased a license last year in the United States, which represents about 4% of the United States population, they go, no way. Right. Because we are hunters. We surround ourselves with people that are like us. So I don't blame them for not understanding that. Who would know that geeky knowledge of yeah. 4%? Um, only us that work in this industry. But yeah, they, they just don't understand it. They think that everyone else around them knows. And that's why it's so important that we represent ourselves better to the non-hunter. Because as you mentioned, ballot box biology is proving to and possibly in the future even hold our hunting future in the hands of people that don't hunt so if we yeah. don't represent ourselves better um, and make sure they know the truth then we're we're, we're not doing ourselves a, a justice and and why that's also important related to the research is that we learned in the research going back to some of the things that we always thought we knew, but we proved was that 80% of non-hunting adults in the United States approve of hunting 80%. Now that hunting, that's a huge that, number. That's a huge number. Now that, that, that support is conditional on certain facts that they need to learn. And that's where this communication strategy helps. We broke it down so that based on whatever you're most comfortable talking about, there's basically four major things that non-hunters want to hear about what hunters do. Um, and, and one of them is um, that we use the meat. The, the support for hunting changes dramatically when they know that we use the meat. And we do use the meat. We as hunters, we know that we're not cutting the head off and leaving it in the field. No. We're walking out of there. There's laws that require us to do this. And when we explain that to non-hunters, they're like, oh, my God, of course I would support hunting. You're eating all this great, this organic protein that's feeding not only you and your families, but you donate it to the hunters for the hungry and you're feeding the hungry. Yes, I support hunting unconditionally. Yes, go, go yeah. at it. And yeah, then they just, that they you ask them, you say, Hey, when was the last time you, you know, you were down in the middle of a timbered hole in the mountain and you had to carry a sandwich out six miles <laughs> four times like you do with an elk, you know I mean? It's yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause you say it's 4% and, and I look at it and I had somebody one time, I think I was in an airport or something, grabbing a gun to go on a hunt and or gun or bow or whatever and uh they're like oh you you hunt and i'm like you don't i mean I, I just most of my world is people that hunt i just don't you know that's the that's the folks that stick with sure. you through the decades right so um you you hear that number and it it is it's it's shocking to hear that number it, it is and but the the re and, and the, the the other reasons that people, I'll go into it real quick, that people, non-hunters, why they support hunting is when they learn how good we are for biodiversity, is that we okay. keep the check of the game. One of the things that actually came up in one of the focus groups was, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hit a deer with my BMW. And if a hunter keeps that overpopulation from happening where I live, I'm all for it. So that's a big 
reason of support that non-hunters support hunting. They also support us for the when we share the economic value that we bring to the mm-hmm. United States. A lot of rural communities in the United States are supported by hunting season. That yeah. army of people come in to buy gas and food and hotel rooms. We do a lot for the economy. We spend a lot of money. We do a lot for conservation. Um, Pittman and Robertson dollars, the money that we spend on guns and ammunition, get returned back to the state agencies that they leverage. That does more great work for wildlife populations. And then finally, um, they they need to understand because they've been told that hunting has been the cause of wildlife populations to be diminished when in fact it's just the the opposite. opposite. Yeah. Um, You know, people are thinking back when they hear that back to the old days of market hunting. Market hunting is not legally regulated hunting in the world that we live in today. And we need to make sure that we make that difference to those people, it, make the difference in their minds. So they understand. In fact, it was the hunting public who actually who got some it. of those things stopped you got it. because it was hurting wildlife populations. You and, you know, I, I've, I've talked to people and, and they're like, oh, well, you hunt. Well, I just, you know, I love animals. I think they should just be left left alone i said well i've also raised you know millions and millions of dollars to further habitat conservation so that those animals have a place how how much have you raised or given for that very little and and people think oh well if we just let it be and leave everything alone there's a harmony in nature whether it was there or not before we have now disrupted that harmony and it takes active management you know to every to time we build population. a road or we build a housing complex or we we mess up mother nature and unfortunately we 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 have to do something to rebalance it because yeah. we have off balanced everything yeah we just talked to uh, another guy on the on the podcast recently and he was talking he says in Arizona he knows where the the era the like three huge pronghorns were taken all within a mile of this one area. And, and one of them is the current world record, I believe. And he said, you know, he said, the sad thing is, he says, I know where that is. I know which ridges those were taken on. And he says, those are all houses now. Yep. And so I'm getting pushed out. I grew up in the Northern Virginia area. I'm farmed here going through college and high school and I'm even having rough places to, to find a, to hunt of places that I've hunted for 20 years. We're getting pushed out from housing developments. It's happening yeah. all around. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many people you talk to and they're like, oh yeah, I killed my first duck or my first deer or whatever. Right in the middle of that Walmart parking lot right there. Yeah. I mean, it was before there was Walmart there, but it's, that's where yep. it was. Yep. And you know, and that's, that right there is one of the problems of why this whole communication strategy is so important of why hunters start learning to represent themselves better to the non-hunting public, how we either have nationwide PR campaigns, state-based PR campaigns. Um, I'm developing a new curriculum for the NRA online hunter education course that will teach all the students how to better persuasively represent themselves when they go out in the world, whether that means one-on-one communications to another hunter, how they represent themselves on social media, which matters dramatically for all of ours representation. We're building that course in our hunter education course to teach all those brand new hunters how to do it better. And And you you guys have started that from the ground up. 
the like the hunter education. Didn't oh, yep. you guys build yep. that entire program? We did. NRA started it in 1949. We were the first organization in the world to build a curriculum for hunter education. And it was used in the United States for 26 years to to it was the only curriculum used into the mid 70s when there was a change in Pittman and Robertson funding and they added the tax on pistols and bows and arrows, which added more money to the fund. And then it allowed state agencies to get money to start hunter education programs. So once the state agencies started to have their own hunter education divisions, they didn't need our literature. It was still used for many years until the state started to make uh, uh, state-based, customizable hunter education stuff. So we got out of the business for many years, but in 2017, we launched a um, most interactive friendly, fun, online hunter education course that we give away for free. Give away for free. For free. That's a very very good price. Don't need to be a member. And on top of free, we got to work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to allow them to use, the states can use the value of our course to get PR match. How the majority of states get their PR match through hunter education is an in-kind donation. That's the the wordage that's used because most hunter education in the United States is taught by volunteers. The WISFR, which is part of the US Fish and Wildlife Service, has a algorithm that values a volunteer hour. Those in the states are all rolled up and they come up with one number and then it's a 25 to 75 match Well, we went and said, we're donating this course. It's no different than a volunteer hour. They said, we agree. Your average course of the for-profit vendor that charges for it is $29.99 or $25.99, whatever it is in that state. And now the state can get the value of our course times however many students took the course in their state, $20,000 times $25.99. They get that money times three. And that's what the actual cash dollar they get from the benefit of our course for free. Students nice. get free edu- free education. State gets free money. It's a good deal. It's hard to find a downside to that. That's a win-win. <laughs> I'd say all the way around. And uh, so what states, and that's how many states. Right are- now, unfortunately, only um, we're in 12 states. Alabama's coming on here in three months. We'll be September 1. So I think that's our 13th state. And we've been 13. doing this since okay. 2017. We're we're ready to do all 50 states. We just got to get the state agency to agree to take the course and let right. five people in their state. All right. Is Oregon on that list? It is. Yep. Oregon, one, Oregon was one of the first. Yep. Good. All right. Yeah. Thank goodness. See, Oregon's not all bad. If you live out, if you live outside of Portland, you know that the beautiful state. Yeah. Have you done any any kind of studies on? Not that my children need introduced to hunting, but introduced to the reason we hunt. I mean, I want my kids to understand. You know, it's more than just dad going out and killing. We do this for a reason. Uh, Have you Have you done any kind of that that kind of stuff? No, we, we haven't done any any research related to that. And come to think of it, I haven't seen any re- or yeah. proposals put in for anything like that. You know, in, in the United States, most people hunt because they're introduced to it from a family member. Yeah. Um, a majority is that. And the, the largest increase in hunter numbers besides segments like, you know, a female 
is adult onset hunting. In the past seven years, got to do with the locavore movement. Um, COVID pushed a lot of people into it. They want to know where their food comes from. Um, that's been the largest bump in hunter numbers. Um, but, you know, we're still sitting at about 11 0.5, 12 million hunters in the United States. We had a, a half a million license number bump from COVID, year one of COVID. But the latest research that just came out a couple months ago showed that that has regressed 1.9% from that extra 5 million, uh, excuse me, 500,000 licenses that were sold. And I, I imagine once football comes back on television. Once the kids can go play travel soccer, those people will go back to doing those things before. If we haven't been able to retain them over the past 20 years, we're not going to retain them once they've come just because of COVID. Unfortunately, well, the reason I asked, I took my, uh, I took my 10 year old out to the blind with me last year. And just based off some of the questions, I quickly realized like she doesn't understand why I hunt. She understands we hunt and that, you know, she understands that we hunt. She didn't, she didn't get why. And I had this big, long conversation with her because in Kansas, you can shoot one buck and this buck came out and she's like, dad, shoot it. You got to, you got to shoot that deer. And I'm like, I can't sweetheart. We can only shoot one buck. And she asked why. And so I'm like, Oh crap. You know, <laughs> now you're getting there. And so I just like explained it to her. I'm like, well, sweetheart, you know, what happens if we invite somebody to live into our house? And she's like, sure. We have a guest room. Yeah. And I'm like, what happens if we invite three people? Oh, we got a couch. I mean, yeah, we'd be fine. I'm like, yeah. What happens if I invited 30 people to live in our house? She's like, well, they couldn't live. We wouldn't have food and we wouldn't have a place for them to sleep. I'm like, same with the deer. Like we have to kill a certain amount of deer so that the deer that live here can survive. And so I went into that with her and I just understood quickly. I'm like, there's no like, there's no information I can feed her based off the internet or books or that will teach her the value of why we hunt. And so I was just curious. Yeah, a little of that is taught in hunter education about what you right. carrying capacity of the land and how hunters right. keep that in check and state agencies, biologists manage that to make sure that we're doing it all right. Um, but the reasons everyone hunts for a different reason. Um, some people do it strictly for the food source. Some people it's a recreational opportunity. Um, so it's I think it's personal to every yeah. hunter and their mentee, mentor, child, however they're explaining it. Yeah, I know, you know, because we're part of our organization. We do conservation work and things like that. But but a big part of our organization and why we were founded was our record program. Right. And, you know, it was interesting. I saw some stats. It was actually at the AWCP meeting that I think you and I were both. That. I don't remember if that was Denver or where it was. And um, anyway, they had the presentation there about views towards hunting. And it was really interesting, you know, like you mentioned earlier, trophy hunting is not as popular as, uh, as other things, even though that meat is also utilized. But I was surprised to learn that bow hunting was among the non-hunting public, the most accepted form of hunting. Um, because I know, you know, even among hunters, sometimes, you know, people don't like bow hunting as much as, as other forms. So, so that was encouraging to me, but for us with, with the trophy hunting aspect of, of what we're doing, I, I think a lot of people, when you talk about carrying capacity and, and things like that, they don't understand that managing for mature animals is a valuable part of that resource management. 
You bet. And right. So I use the, and, and the we, thing. And and not only we pay to do it, and the yeah. money that we pay to do it helps it happen. We're all we're yeah, this is full circle, this whole thing that we yeah. do. Yeah. And outdoors people were the ones who insisted in the Pittman Robertson Act taxing ourselves right to pay for conservation. You bet. You you know, I don't I haven't seen that. Yep. With, you know, bicycle riders no. or anyone else saying, hey, I want you to tax me right. so that money goes back towards what I believe in. I haven't seen anybody else do that. No, no, not so, so much. Yeah. But maybe that's why we're a smaller segment of the population. <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, no, it's all really interesting. And if somebody wants your book, if you have somebody that's in the public eye, um, is it? Is it on Amazon? Is there a way they can get it? Or what's the best way for folks to find out that information? Because there is some phenomenal information that I think people realistically need to know. If 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 you're a hunter and you want your kids to be able to hunt, if you want to be able to hunt in 20 years, there are some messaging that we can do. It may not make a difference today, but over the course of the next two decades, we need to do a better job of this to ensure that we have two decades from now. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, we, I mean, you, are you asking where they can get some more information? Yeah. Where, where do they go for this information, Peter? You know, we, we had it, uh, we had it up those six articles that we did at American Hunter and I believe they're out there. There's, I think if you Google protecting cultural acceptance of hunting, some of the articles that I've written will come up on the internet. Um, and one of those, that one article that comes up is it's very, it's the 10,000 foot level of this, right. um, but usually I think in that article is my email or my phone number. Um, if I don't get a zillion request, I'll send you a book. Um, cause I, we just did another printing of 5,000 books last week. Um, and then I can always send people the articles and then there's okay. more to come on this. Like I said, we are going to build a whole thing in hunter education. There's there's organizations that are working on a nationwide PR campaign in support of hunting, which is very important. And then these state-based wildlife councils like they have in Colorado and Michigan, hopefully will increase in popularity because they are v- proven to be very successful in this 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 term that I use that hopefully becomes more a part of everyone's hunter's vernacular is called protecting cultural acceptance of hunting, protecting cultural acceptance of hunting. It's basically to dumb it down to the slowest level, which works very well for me. It is keeping the people that we've proven that don't hate us from hating us. We already have them on our side. We know the research says that 80% of them support us. We just need to make sure that they keep supporting us when given the opportunity to to vote for or against us. This is not about trying to make them into hunters. This is just keeping and maintaining their support for hunting. Very important. Extremely important. I just gave a speech down in Florida two weeks ago at the International Hunter Education Association about this topic and what is to come in the United States. When you look at population growth for the United States, In 50 years from now, we will have 72 million more people in the United States, 72 million more people in 50 years. Um, And 20% is going to be the highest level in history in 50 years from now. 20% of the Americans will be foreign born, 
meaning they will have not been born in the United States. They'll come from somewhere else. And we know from the history that we've done and the research and the type of people that hunt today, if you don't grow up in a hunting family, the likeliness of you hunting is impossible. The people that are going to come to this country from other countries, we're, you know, we're, that's what we're all about in this country. We're That's what we do. Um, right. But at the end of the day, they're probably not coming from hunting background people. So they're going to be unlikely to hunt. And so you really got to worry about this, what I call the gap from the people that hunt and then the people that don't hunt. So we can, R3 is very important. We have a lot of very dedicated um, professionals in the outdoor industry, state agencies, NGOs, that are what's called R3 professionals, recruitment, reactivation, and retention, trying to maintain and keep hunting growing. It's very important. We have to do it. If they haven't been doing all that work for the past eight years, we'd probably be at 8 million licensed hunters today. Mm, yeah. But we still are not growing fast enough. All this work we're doing, we're still not maintaining with the growth of population. So now we're sitting at 11 million licensed hunters, 365 million people in the United States, and then we're going to go probably, even if we maintain at 11.5 million licensed hunters, we're going to go up to uh, 407 million people, which is going to drop us down to two and a half, three percent of the population. And those are worrisome ratios. That's where we have to be worried about the ballot box biology. And yeah. if we can just maintain their support, make sure they don't start hating us. <laughs> then we have an opportunity to maintain, keep doing what we want to do. Yeah. And, and you just think, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, if I just keep doing the right things, then the right things will happen. And I, I think we've both seen examples where that's not the case oh, where you're doing wow. everything you can the right way. Right. And, you know, if you're not playing the game in this case, yep. you know, getting the messaging out, Yep. To, to promote the social acceptance, it, it's yeah. it's the wrong, it's just the wrong message you, you, or no message is the wrong message. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's, and not it's, the, it's not the end all be all that's going to save hunting in this country, but it's another tool in our toolbox that we should be using because yeah. it may not be the best thing, but I have a good feeling that I think it's one of the, one of our best hopes right now is to maintain the cultural support because we have it. Once you lose it, it's an almost impossible to get back, but we have it right now and we should be doing everything we possibly can to maintain it. Yeah. And you know, the nice thing is I think, well, I know it's gaining traction because it's just too good of information not to, but when I see, you know, like I said, I've known you for a long time. And so, you know, th that I know about it isn't surprising, but when I hear other people in the industry using the terminology, of social accept, you know, it's catching on because yeah. you didn't hear them say those particular words 10 years ago. You, got it. you didn't hear them say that six years ago. Nope. Now, all of a sudden you're like, I think they read the book or at least an article. Yep. You know, and exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And that's good because as, as leaders in the outdoor community, we need to be held to, to that standard of, you know, not, taking people off that yep. we don't need to take off. You know, yep. we're never going to change the mind on an anti-hunter. If they're against it, we're probably never going to get them. Nope. But if they're just not a hunter and not an anti-hunter, those are the folks that we need to represent well for, because they're going to matter someday when they, when they go to 
to vote or when they go to vote for someone who votes, th- someday it's going to matter. You bet. Exactly. So, right. Yep. Yeah. And that's one thing that we did learn from the research that when somebody is too far gone, don't try. Agree to disagree yeah. and walk away. You're not going to yeah. change their mind. Yeah. No. And, and yeah. And whatever you do, don't try logic because it's completely <laughs> ineffective. <laughs> I had a 17 hour flight. I was actually going to South Africa. Well, so were they. Um, 17 hour flight with some folks and uh, sitting next to them. And it became very clear that we were just never going to agree. And so I would tell them all these things that the hunting does and not, and it's different. You know, the North American model is completely different than what you have in South America or in Africa or in Europe. It's just, yeah, it's completely different. And so I'm trying to explain that it's not like, you know, we're going to Africa. It's not like it's just one giant, you know, uh, you know, Disney scene with, right. you know, here's the lion and the warthog holding hands. Right. It's that's not it. And they, they couldn't understand that. It's not just a kumbaya all the time. I'm like, right. no lions eat warthogs. It's one of their favorite meals. Right. And, and they just, yeah. And as much as I told them about what hunters give back and how much good, the hunting does in that area, they just could not grasp it. Yeah. So, it's, not in, it's not in their life. And that's what another thing that I, I when I talk and tell people is that you got to take bit by bit because non-hunters don't understand anything about our lives. They don't understand yeah. anything about the outdoor world. Um, even if they're a backpacker or a hiker, it's it, they probably don't have the knowledge base that we have about those things because it's our passion. So right. you got to take time to explain and don't get frustrated and don't overload them with details because this is all brand new to them. All brand yeah. new. Yeah. I did get a kick out of uh, while I was in camp, the Eland and the Kudus that we shot all went as meat to the the greeny camps, they call this. Right, right. <laughs> so the people that were sitting on the plane next to me who had to listen to why hunting was a good thing, they actually, by paying to be there and buy that meat from our camp, helped right. subsidize my hunt. Exactly. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Once again, that's probably not how you want to do the talking points, but at the time <laughs> I was getting a kick out of it. So, well, I'll tell you what. Um, you know, Peter, one of the questions that we ask everybody on this show is when you find yourself out in the field, whether it, uh, uh, you know, hunting in Oregon, up in Canada, where we've hunted together, like wherever you find yourself in the marsh on the mountain, what is one non-traditional piece of equipment that you find you taking, taking with you? Well, you know. I don't know ever where I go. I never leave home without my uncrustables. <laughs> yes. Yes. We have arrived. Best answer we've <laughs> ever gotten. <laughs> of those things. Oh, man. Yeah, that's. Uh, but have we, you ever put butter on them and toasted them? <laughs> no. What, you know, pretty good. Yeah. We did a whole segment on Instagram about about toasting uncrustables. So. Yeah, so, well, you know, one thing in all seriousness, you know, I, I've, I'm an East Coast hunter now. I lived out West for, I don't know, 10 years or whatever. Um, 
and now I'm an East Coast hunter, so I'm spoiled. I'm usually not hunting more than 500 yards from my truck. Um, oh, geez. So we don't have the packs that we go in with. But when I was hunting out West, two things. One, a change of pair of socks from my days of a Boy Scouts and hiking 50 miles, you know, doing the Len Hoxon 50 up in Maine is a fresh pair of socks every six hours is like uh, as like a massage. Um, so change those socks out, keep those wet, keep your feet dry and nice squishy bounce. That will save your day. And then two, I always want my, uh, I have a really good small medical kit that I made myself that has come in very handy for me and others. Very yeah. about that big. And it goes in all my pack, whether I'm hunting backcountry, even local tree stands, I take that first aid kit with me. Yeah, that's a smart idea. So I right. like the uncrustable answers. I, I, we got to go. That's first answer is always the best. <laughs> we'll let Nick know that you're in there with him on the uncrustables. You so, bet. yeah, no, that's great. Well, Peter, um, great to great to see you. Thanks for all you're doing. I know you guys just had a successful auction for the Hunters Leadership Foundation yeah. there, and yeah. uh, I know I may have gotten a few boxes from that myself thank <laughs> you very much <laughs> so anyway uh really appreciate all you're doing on behalf of all of the hunters and pope and young members out there and uh you know hope hope you and the nra continue fighting the good fight for us we appreciate it appreciate it thank you for having me all right thank you